You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church. And uh, today, if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Uh, We are starting a new series in the book of Ephesians. Uh, We just uh, finished the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and we've actually spent most of the year in the Old Testament. And so uh, today we get to to finally make our way to the New Testament to read this letter, to study this letter to the church, which is really all about the church. Now, one of the most common questions that uh, I get asked in the city, I'm assuming uh, likewise you get asked as well, is this question, what do you do, right? <laughs> uh, before people uh, want to know anything about who you are, uh, before they want to know where you're from, before they want to know what, what hobbies or what things you're actually interested in, in life, uh, they primarily want to know your profession, your career, your occupation, the trajectory of your professional life. Now, I find this question very interesting, especially when I find myself in kind of a mixed setting of people who don't really know me. For example, recently at a child's birthday party with my kids of other parents. The reason I find this question so interesting is because I really don't know how people are going to respond to my answer, right? When people ask, what do you do? Uh, and I answer with, I'm a pastor. Uh, that, that, can, that can definitely change things quickly, right? Whether people have personal experience with Christianity, the church, or whether they have no religious experience at all. When I say those words that I'm a pastor, sometimes it can be a conversation killer. Oh, you're a pastor? All right, cool. <laughs> you know, I'm out. Uh, thanks for talking. Right. I, I literally had this, this party we were at. Uh, I was talking to some of the dads, and one of the dads overheard me share that I was a pastor of a church here in D.C., and he literally faked a phone call to walk away. Like, have you ever done that to someone? Like, that's just, that's just low, right? What do you, like, I could tell, like, he, he wasn't really getting a call. Uh, he just wanted to get out of the conversation. And another guy, uh, another dad, when I, when I shared about uh, the church, uh, he finally showed interest in his child playing on the playground for the first time in 30 minutes to try to avoid any further conversation. Now, I share that because it's not just those who avoid the conversation, but it's also when people engage with that topic. Right? When they hear, okay, you're a pastor, well, the, the follow-up question usually is, well, why do you want to be a pastor? Or why, why, what's so important about the church that you would pastor the church? Or, or why did you want to start a church in Washington, D.C.? Now, what I find true about those questions, and even those who are avoiding asking those questions, is that most of the time those questions are not really about me, but they're a deeper question about the church, in essence, when people ask that question, why, do you, uh, why, why are you a pastor of a church? Why did you help start a church in Washington, D.C.? What they're really asking is, why in the world is the church that important? What they're really asking underneath that in their own soul is, why bother with the church? Why dedicate your time and your life to something like this? And perhaps you've asked that question in your own life. Maybe this morning, when you were getting ready, staring in the mirror, you're asking the question, Why are we doing this again? Why are we coming this morning to gather together? I know some of us in this room perhaps have grown up around the church and the Christian faith, and we might say, well, it's because we love the church. Some of us in the room, if we're honest with ourselves, we feel pretty hurt and jaded towards the church. Some of us, perhaps this is your first time in a service, a church service, and uh, perhaps you're just investigating or you're even skeptical of the church. Eugene Peterson writes a book uh, about the letter of Ephesians, and he says this about the church in Ephesus. He says, the church is God's advertisement to the world. 
It is God's advertisement of the world. And some of us would see that and we'd say, our, our comms director mind's going off there. We're saying, well, that's a bad ad campaign, right? Like God, God's ad, you know, uh, advertisement, uh, they, they need some help. That agency needs some help because when you look around the world, the church is pretty messy. It's pretty broken. It doesn't seem like the best foot forward sometimes. It wouldn't take us long or very long or very hard to dig deep and to find some really, really uh, brokenness in the church. And we could spend here all day and we could beat up the church. But the problem with that is that through all the brokenness that the church carries, the Bible presents a very beautiful picture of it. The Bible presents something mysterious, something glorious about the church. And we get it in different pictures in the book of Ephesians, which really is our big idea for this series. Who is the church? The church functions kind of like this broken mirror. It's, it's broken, it's messy, but yet when you glare into the mirror, you see a reflection of God's glory. You see a reflection of who he is and what he is like. Why bother with the church? Well, Ephesians is going to teach us that the church is pretty glorious, that the church is pretty important, that the church is like a microcosm of God's incredible plan of grace in this world. Ephesians is going to teach us that it is through the church that people from all different walks of life are actually reconciled and brought together in unity. Ephesians is going to teach us that it is through the church in which God's plan of salvation for this world is unfolding. Ephesians is going to teach us that even in the mundane brokenness of the church, it is the wisdom and power of God that is displayed through the church. Which leads us to our main idea this morning as we enter into Ephesus, as we enter into this new book to the Ephesians that God takes broken people and he forms them into a new community in Christ. The beauty of the church is that he takes broken people just like you and me and he forms us into this new community in Christ. So we're going to find that the letter to the Ephesians is pretty unique. It's, it's unique and in, in, it separates itself a little bit from uh, the purposes of some of the other letters in the New Testament. Because when you read the other letters in the New Testament, you see that most of them are provoked by some problem. Right? Maybe there's a behavioral problem with people in the church that the apostles are having to address, or maybe there's a belief problem that they're having to address. But in Ephesians, you don't see that. In fact, what you see is a more generic letter. In fact, most scholars believe that the, the letter of Ephesians was actually circulated amongst many congregations in Asia Minor. The reason because the, the book of Ephesians, the letter we're going to see, is not necessarily dealing with one specific human problem. But what it's uncovering is the identity of the church. What it's going to uncover for us is who we are as the church and what it means to be the church. We're going to see in Ephesians that the church is the context in which we grow up in our faith in Christ. We're going to see in Ephesians that, that the, the church is kind of what, what we'll see is the, the ins and outs of the church that is the, the soil and the root system in which we grow in our faith. And the book of Ephesians is really going to be divided into two sections. So if you're, if you're reading through it as we study it, it's really divided into two sections. You'll see in chapter 1 through 3, Paul's going to be addressing this identity question. Who is the church? Who are we? What has Christ done for us? What is the gospel message? Who are we in Christ? And then in chapters 4 through 6, we're going to see then, if we know who we are in Christ as the church, then what is our conduct as the church? How do we live out our calling? How do we live out the ethics of the Bible in society? And that's just what Christianity reminds us is that if we don't understand our identity, if we don't understand our calling, if we're not secure in who we are as the church, then it's going to be impossible for us to be secure in how we ought to live as the church. 
So we have to deal with, by, with this, we have to wrestle with this question of identity in the beginning of the book of Ephesians in order to get us to a place where we can then apply what God has called us to as the church. Our outline today is going to flow straight from the greeting. We're just going to look at the, the beginning of the book of Ephesians today, and we'll also reference back to Acts 19. We're going to look at four points right here in the beginning. Number one, we're going to identify who the author of the letter is, who wrote this letter, and why is that important. We're going to see the recipients of the letter, who are the people receiving this letter, and what is their situation in Ephesus. We're going to get the message of the letter. What is the message that Paul is clearly communicating right from the beginning of his greeting onward in this book? And then finally, we're going to see the stamp of the letter, the stamp of God's character that he puts all over this letter. So let's go ahead and jump into point number one, the author of the letter, verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So right off the bat, we see who the author is. It's this man named Paul. Now, whether you are new to the church or you've been around uh, the church or Christianity for a while, uh, it's safe to say that Paul is kind of a big deal in the New Testament, right? Uh, he, he is kind of a big deal. You can actually see Paul's life, uh, the, even the prehistory of Paul's life before he was a Christian in the book of Acts. And what Paul shows us and demonstrates to us and perfectly emulates is how God can take the brokenness in someone's life and turn it into something beautiful. He is the perfect example of this. You have Paul, this, this man who was of an elite class. He was educated well. He was smart. He was accomplished. And everybody in, in his circles knew that this guy was going to be great in society. But the problem in Paul's life was that he took this a little too far. Paul became this religious fanatic. In fact, he was part of kidnapping and murdering a number of people who didn't believe in his brand of intense Judaism. If Paul uh, were to have a Twitter in the first century, uh, his, his Twitter would be a disaster, right? Uh, he would be quoted on every major news outlet because of some of the things that he would have said specifically about Christianity and those who followed Jesus. But Paul has this dramatic conversion experience in the book of Acts. He, he has this dramatic experience where he meets the risen Jesus and his life is utterly changed forever. In a moment, the fanaticism that he once carried transformed to this incredible love and care and devotion to others. And that intensity, that religious intensity that he once had was transformed into this perseverance in the face of all suffering. And Paul dedicated the rest of his life traveling around the Roman Empire, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and starting new churches. He was imprisoned several times. He was beaten multiple times. And yet his life shows us how out of brokenness, when God enters into our story, he produces something beautiful. And Paul becomes this great evangelist, this great missionary. And he's then writing these letters back to the churches that he's visited. And he's not popping up in his favorite coffee shop to write this letter. At the end of his life here, he is in prison. He is in house arrest in Rome. He is chained to a Roman guard. And in fact, he alludes to his imprisonment several times in this book. Now, knowing that Paul is in prison, he's in chains, he's in house arrest. How does Paul write with such hope in this letter? How does Paul write with such certainty, with such optimism? Well, it's kind of given in the label that he has here in verse 1. Paul, an apostle. The word apostle sometimes can be used in a general sense in the New Testament, but more often than not, it's used in what we call a technical sense. And what we mean by that is that it, it, it is a, a title given to people who have met the risen Jesus, who knew Jesus, and then were commissioned by Jesus, given authority to go and minister in his name and continue his mission after he ascends into heaven. 
There we go. So Paul is, uh, that was weird. Uh, So Paul is commissioned by Jesus to then continue his ministry. And that's important for us because when Paul's writing this letter, and as we're receiving this letter written by Paul, we're receiving it as Paul, a messenger of Christ. That he is teaching us something about who Christ is. Paul's not just some guy who got an online degree and started calling himself an apostle, right? He says he's an apostle by what? The will of God. That is by God's grace that he carries this title. And Paul would later say in this letter in Ephesians chapter 2, something very important about the apostles. He'll teach us in Ephesians chapter 2 that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles, with Jesus being the cornerstone. In essence, the church can only exist when Jesus is the foundation, when he is the cornerstone. But then Jesus uses these apostles, these ministers of the gospel, to write the New Testament letters to jumpstart the early church. And that's what we see in the book of Acts, chapter 2, that what does the early church do? Well, they devote themselves to the apostles' teachings. And likewise, we come into a room today, and we devote ourselves with hunger in our souls to receive the truth of God's word. And Paul here is an apostle by God's will, by his grace. So from the very beginning, we see from the authorship of this letter that this is a man who was once broken. And it's a reminder that the church is the place where God uses broken human beings just like you and me, and he transforms us into something beautiful and glorious. That is why we bother with church, because we believe that God is transforming. He's at work, and Paul is a primary example of this. Then we see the recipients of the letter. So Paul writes, and who does he write to? Well, look at verse 1 again. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So Paul's writing to these Christians in the area of Asia Minor. More specifically, he is writing to those who live in the city called Ephesus, which is kind of the hub city of this area. There's a map on the screen here that shows precisely where Ephesus is located, uh, specifically where Paul's journey from Antioch to uh, Ephesus was. This is a very strategic city. It was considered uh, the third largest city in the Roman world, only smaller to Rome itself in Alexandria and Egypt. As you can see, it's a very strategically located city. It was right on the, the, the mouth of a river that sh- uh, went up into Asia Minor. So people would come to this port city, they would gather their goods, and then they would travel up into the other cities in Asia. So we see in the situation here that Ephesus is a wealthy city, it is a strategic city, but it is also a very religious city. The center of the city was a temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis, which the Greeks reference, or Diana, which the Romans reference as goddess. And you'll see a, 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 this is a model of the temple here, uh, here in Ephesus. Classical writers say that this temple was so beautiful, so immaculate, that it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, rivaling that of the pyramids. This t- temple was at the center of the cultural life in Ephesus. People rallied around it. They worshiped there. It represented the entire city. But it wasn't the only place where deities were worshipped. And in fact, Ephesus was known as a pluralistic society, the type of society that had types of different worldviews, all types of different belief systems, both religious and non-religious, represented. And it all centered around this temple and the worship that took place there. And this is the situation which Paul enters in Acts 19. If we're going back to Acts 19, we see Paul entering into and stepping into Ephesus, and he is proclaiming the truth of Christianity. And as we see Paul begin to teach about Christianity, those who are there uh, pose a question to him immediately. They're like, hey, Paul, you're talking about this, uh, this, this person, the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? And Paul realizes immediately, okay, I need to stay here a little longer. There's some holes in their theology. And so verse 10 tells us in chapter 19, for two years, Paul stayed. 
He remained there that all the residents of Asia would hear the word of the Lord, both the Jews and Greeks. So Paul's entering this pluralistic society and he's promoting Christianity as the only worldview that really makes sense about life. The only worldview that will make sense about the universe and how it was created and how humanity we are to interact with the divine. But this wasn't a pluralistic society that had worship of deities and, and, and lived in, in some forms of immorality, sexual immorality specifically with temple prostitution. But it was also a society that was wrapped up in the demonic, in the occults, in magic. In verse 19 11, it says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. One of those things was that he was casting out evil demons in Ephesus which leads to one of the most hilarious stories uh, in the book of Acts of the story of these seven sons of Sceva. Now, these guys were like the local Ghostbusters gang, okay? They thought that they would be really cool to follow in Paul's footsteps and try to cast out demons themselves. They saw a good opportunity, maybe an open corner on the market for something new in the city, and so they try to do what Paul does. And it says in uh, the, uh, the next verse that they tried to adjure these demons by the name of Jesus who Paul proclaims. And I love the response here in verse 15. Uh, Jesus, I know, the demon says. Paul, I recognize, but who are you, right? Uh, they're like, hey, we've, we've passed around the newsletter in the spiritual realm. We know who Paul is, but we don't know who you are. Like, we know who that cat is. We definitely know Jesus, but who are you? And the next verse is verse 16. It says that the spirit literally leaps on these men. They master these young boys. Literally, they get their pants beat off. They're left naked and wounded. They clearly lost this fight. Right? In the midst of this, it's important to recognize the culture that Ephesus was, was, uh, was, was entrenched with because Paul is going to write a lot in the book of Ephesians, specifically at the end of the book of Ephesians, about the topic of spiritual warfare. And there's a reason he addresses it, because he knows the culture and the climate of Ephesus here. And the, the response to these boys literally getting their pants beat off by this demon is what happens in verse 17. Look, because of this, it says it became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. In essence, what ends up happening is people begin to praise the name of Jesus because of what Paul is doing in the city. They begin to praise his name, and then verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. So they begin to bring their Harry Potter and their Twilight novels, and I'm totally kidding, guys. All right, but they, they, bring, they bring these things that were wicked, that were dark, these things of the occult. And they literally bring them and begin to burn them in the sight of all. And it says they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Historians believe this would be somewhere equivalent of six to eight million dollars worth of materials that they are burning in the middle of the city. What happens next in verse 20, it says, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And if we continue to read the story in Acts 19 of these early Christians in Ephesus, we'll see that as people became, uh, uh, became known as Christians, what ends up happening is they turned from their false idolatry and their practices, and it was so significant that it literally upended the economy of Ephesus. It literally changed the entire dynamic of the city. And here's the situation in which Paul is writing to this church, a pluralistic, wealthy, crazy place that, by the way, was unfriendly to the church, there are riots against Christians happening in Ephesus, and yet, in the midst of all that, the church begins to flourish. In the midst of all that, God begins to form a people in Ephesus that exposes the powerlessness of the false gods that they worshipped. He begins to build a, a, a group of people that literally would change the climate of the society of the city. And Paul is writing to these individuals in that place, reminding them that God is at work. That should be encouraging for us today. 
Because whether we're fully exposed to it or not, the city of Ephesus is much like the city of Washington, D.C. We still live in a society that is pluralistic, a culture of idolatry, a culture even of superstition and the occult, a culture of immorality, of materialism, of the worship of things that we believe are more important than God, just like Ephesus. But God reminds us here that Christ, his power, can break through all of those forces. He does it in Ephesus, and he can do it today. He can bring people to faith in him. And this is how the church gets started in Ephesus. So we get back to the book of Ephesians. This is now eight to ten years later. Paul's writing, and he addresses them. And what does he call these Christians? He calls them saints. What a beautiful title. He's not talking about the football team on Sundays. He's not talking about the, those that we see on statues in uh, European cathedrals. He's not talking about superpower Christians here. He's talking about everyday, normal, faithful people, and he is calling them saints. It is not by accident. He is reminding them that as they persevere as the church in the midst of messiness and the brokenness of their city, that God has a unique blessing upon them. They are saints in Christ. And the same is true for us today. That we are not called saints as Christians because we are immune to troubles in this world. We're not called saints as Christians because we are perfect or because we're without brokenness. We are called saints because of God's grace that he has lavished upon us. This is a title of endearment for these people, that they are saints. And he says they're also faithful in Christ Jesus. They're faithful in Christ Jesus. In essence, they're those who believe in Christ. And upon believing in Christ, they are then united with Jesus Christ. Now, this phrase, in Christ Jesus, is going to be something that we're going to look at week by week here uh, in the book of Ephesians. It's going to be used 36 times, more than any other letter in the New Testament. And what he means by this is that to, to believe, to, to be faithful in Christ Jesus, to believe in Christ, and we believe upon Christ, we are then united to him, which means that we receive the blessings of knowing Christ. And we'll expound upon this next week when we think about the spiritual blessings that he begins to unfold but to believe today that you are in Christ means that Christ's riches are now our riches. It means that Christ's resources for this life are now our resources. It means that his righteousness is now our righteousness. It means that his power to live this life is now our power. And it reminds us that even though opposition does come in this life, it definitely came in Ephesus that we are secure in him. That's the good news of the gospel this morning, that our identity in Christ is not based in our performance or popularity or productivity or prominence. It's in the person and work of Christ himself. That is where our identity lies as the church. Now, what is the message that he begins to deliver to these saints in Ephesus? Well, look here at his greeting, his salutation. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. From this greeting onward, he's going to elaborate on these two words, grace and peace. These are like rock-solid foundations that, that are going to be mined up and up again in the book of Ephesians, to the Ephesians. What does he begin with? Well, he begins with God's grace. He tells them, grace to you. Grace is this undeserving blessing from God. See, we live in a world we like to, to talk about the things that we deserve, Right? Oftentimes we like to think about the good things that we deserve, but not the bad things that we deserve, right? But the gospel message, the centrality of it right here, is baked into God's grace, which reminds us that every good thing that we possess is earned for us by someone else, namely Christ. And it is ours freely. 
not because of the good that we've done, not because we've earned it, but because God has loved us in Christ. And it's because of God's love that we receive his grace this morning. He tells the church, look, hey, be filled with God's grace. That is my message to you, but it's also a message of peace. Now, sometimes we think of peace, we, we think of war, and we think of, okay, well, it's when there's a ceasefire, then there's peace. It's when two armies stop fighting. It's when there's the absence of conflict, but that's not the full picture of God's peace. Peace here is something whole. It's complete. It's satisfied. Peace means that all the conditions are finally right for us to flourish in this world. And how can all the conditions in this world be finally right for us as believers to flourish in this world? Well, it's because there is the end of hostility between God and man. That through Christ and what he does for us, there is no anger or condemnation in the heart of God left for his people because Christ absorbs that penalty for us on the cross. And because of his blood spilled on the cross, we have peace, wholeness, completion, satisfaction, all the, 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 the conditions are finally right for us to experience fullness and joy in this life through Christ. The message of hope here is both one of grace, our undeserved blessings from God that he lavishes upon us and peace from him. That there's a way for us to be made right, a way for us to be whole, to be complete, to be in relationship with him once again. Now, sometimes when we think of the Christian faith, our minds go to, well, isn't it about adopting a set of rules? Isn't it about living uh, out this religious calling? Isn't it about a code of ethics? Is that, isn't that the message that Christianity portrays? Isn't that what we should be doing? And often people uh, think this is the central message of Christianity. In fact, one of the, one of the greatest uh, civil rights uh, uh, leaders ever in the history of the world, Mahatma Gandhi, believed this to be true. Mahatma Gandhi was a religious, uh, silver, excuse me, he was a civil rights leader in India, did a, a lot of great things for humanity, specifically for his people. And he writes in one of his books uh, about the, the problem with humanity. And he says, as he searched and searched and searched, the problem with humanity is that we're full of selfishness and that we're egocentric. And he says, that is the problem of every human heart, that we're, we're, we're full of our own ego and we're selfish. And what that actually led Mahatma Gandhi to believe is that the way out of that is actually the way of Jesus. But what he interpreted as the way of Jesus was to say that Jesus is our example. He is our example of nonviolence. He is our example of sacrifice. He is our example of forgiving others. He is our example of loving our enemies. And when we see Jesus live that way, he says it should inspire us to set aside our selfishness and be the person we know we're supposed to be. Now that sounds great. It sounds inspiring. But the reality is, if the Christian faith is about looking to Jesus as our example, and we're calling that the central message of Christianity, that is an exercise in complete futility. Because if we're honest with ourselves, if we spend our days just looking at the example of Jesus and saying we need to live up to that, it will crush us day after day. Because there's no way that we can live up to the slightest standard that he has set for us. But what Paul is saying here from the very beginning of his letter is that the message that he is delivering is not one that says live by the rules. It's not one that says do this or do that. It is saying that for the Christian, the last words that Jesus cries on the cross, it is finished, should be our first. That the way we begin our lives as Christians is to say that it is finished for us. 
that we are found in Christ, faithful in Christ, as he says here in his introduction, and that we have received his grace and peace. This is the starting point for the Christian. And this is what separates the Christian message from every other worldview. And it's why Christianity today is just too good to be false. It is too good to be false because it's all about what God has already done for us. Now, how do we then embody this grace and peace, this message of hope that he's going to continue to expound upon in the letter to the Ephesians? How do we embody being a a church that says we're full of both grace and peace? Well, he's going to use different imageries throughout the letter to, to show this. But in essence, what he's going to portray for us, a vision for the church, is that when these two things come together, things that seem irreconcilable are brought together in perfect unity and harmony. What I mean by that is that when we are a church that is filled with both grace and peace, it breeds unity. It breeds something so beautiful that he's going to give us a picture of the church in this letter that says that we can be in the same room gathered together, worshiping the same God, No matter our backgrounds, whether we're rich and sophisticated or poor and simple, we can find life and joy together. It is a place that every ethnicity, both Jew and Gentile, he'll say, will join together in friendship and partnership in the gospel. The church is a place where we walk in grace and peace, where people from all walks of life can come together and they can be heard by one another. They can be held in respect and honor towards one another. The embodiment of grace and peace is to see a community of people who seem to have nothing in common yet find themselves together. That's how we embody this message of grace and peace. This is the vision Paul has for the church, and this is who he'll continue to expound upon the church is in this book. That we are people made new in Jesus, and we belong to this new community called the church. As we come to our Time of conclusion, as we prepare our hearts to the Lord's Supper, let's look at point number four, the stamp of the letter. What is God's stamp upon this letter from beginning to end? We're going to see that he's putting his stamp of his love in this letter. It's written all over the letter. Chapter one, we're going to see that he's going to show his love that even before the foundations of the world, he loved the church. In chapter 2, he's going to show us that he loves us by redeeming those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. And he lavishes his love upon us and he makes us new creations. In chapter 3, he's going to teach us the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. In chapter 4, he's going to teach us how love unites us together. In chapter 5, he's going to show us that he, being the groom, loves the bride, the church, so much so that he lays down his life for us, his beloved. And then we get to the very end of this letter, and the conclusion is fitting for us to look at today because it's a reminder of the stamp of God's love that is all over this letter. As Paul begins with this message of grace and peace to the church, he ends this way in his final words. Grace be with us. All who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. I think it's very interesting that Paul would choose to book in the book of Ephesians with a reminder to love Jesus, with an encouragement to love Christ. And the reason why is because somewhere along the way, this stopped happening in Ephesus. The beauty of the church of Ephesus is that we can actually see it from beginning to end. And we can look in the book of Revelation some 40 years after this church started in Revelation chapter 2. And this is what Jesus says to this church. 
He says, this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the work you did at first. You see, as we enter into Ephesus, we're going to see that Paul is writing this letter to awaken the church to not forget the love that we have because of his love first. The love we have for Jesus is only made possible because Christ has loved us first. And because he has loved us first, it should do something within us. It should call us to action. And it surely did for the Ephesians back in Acts 19. Once they experience the love of Christ, what do they begin to do? They begin to praise his name and they begin to walk in transparency. So much so that they begin to lay down and divulge of their practices, of their lifestyles that they lived. They begin to realize that I, I am unworthy, but he is worthy. They begin to realize that, that I, am, I am lowly and I am broken, but he is not. He is worthy. And because of that, all the struggles that they had and all the, the practices that they had put before God, the, the things that they had put their hope in, they begin to lay those things down before King Jesus as a showcase of their love. You see, as we come to the Lord's Supper, to love Jesus today doesn't mean that we have it all together. And the church is surely not that. It doesn't mean that we have to, to put it all together today. When we love Jesus, we get to be exactly who we are. People who are broken, who have been redeemed by Christ. People who are wondering, people who are seeking, people who are unsure. But we can rest that Jesus Christ is none of those things. This is why his love is so important for us to end as we think about this letter, as we embark on entering into this letter. Because as we'll see next week, because of Christ's love, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This is who we already are as believers. God taking broken people and forming us into a new community in Christ. So this morning, if you are in Christ, I encourage you, let's walk in grace and peace with one another. Let's remind ourselves that although we are broken, there's something very beautiful about the church. And it is that we get to display the very glory of God as we unite together around Christ. And if you are not in Christ today, perhaps you are still seeking today, I pray that you'll see that he has done everything for you already. And he has loved you so deeply. And it is by his grace, Ephesians will remind us that we can experience this love, not of our works, not of anything that we do, but because of what Christ has done for us. Today you can trust him. Today you can experience his grace and his peace in your own life. Today you can become part of this new community of broken people who are united together in our beautiful and perfect Savior. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.